0: The Partially Examined Life depends on your support. To find out how to do that in ways that are cheap or even free, go to PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support.
1: You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, Episode 196, Part 2. We've been talking with Simon Blackburn about his just-released book, On Truth. So you were saying, Simon, that the previous book, Truth Guides the Perplexed, the rhetorical target was postmodernists, was relativists, which is still a very popular target today. And the target in this book seems to be really any philosopher prior to the 20th century who actually wanted to come up with a theory of truth, or, you know, G. Moore's early 20th century, but a theory of truth apart from looking at the practical aspects. I would think the most immediate audience that we need some sort of argument against is people who think that truth is unproblematic. So in fact, the people that are complaining about the postmodernists now, no, you're denying the objectivity of truth, don't seem to understand that there's actually a problem. Like, well, what do you actually mean by truth? Do you need a definition? Is it just simply basic? We all understand what it is. I mean, it seems like if you're a deflationist, then you think, well, actually it is kind of basic. I mean, there's this theory that we were just giving about how it's really... As it is used, it's an abbreviation, it's a abbreviational tool, it's a rhetorical tool, but in terms of just understanding it well enough to be able to use it and defend the objectivity of scientific claims and the other things that the people who hate postmodernists are against, it seems like they've already got it figured out. They don't need this book. Uh, Can you address, what is your initial argument against that complacency?
2: I think the right argument about complacency is the difficulties of finding trustworthy sources of information. In a world in which inevitably we can't do everything ourselves, we take an awful lot of information. Most of what we think we know is taken from other sources, from other people, from reports, from histories, from scientific textbooks, and so on. Uh, We can't do it all ourselves. I mean, most of us would be hard-pressed to prove that the... Earth goes round the sun by ourselves, even in spite of having been the benefits of good educations and knowing that it's been known for 500 years. But if we were asked to go out and show it for ourselves, we might be a bit stumped. Now, that's just an illustration of the vast extent to which our knowledge is based on testimony of other people. And, of course, knowing which of that testimony is trustworthy is a matter of working our way into the human world, just as we have to work our way into the scientific world, the natural world, and finding what stands firm and what doesn't, finding that some newspapers are the first to admit when they've made mistakes, others never do. Some TV programs get their reporters out there in the field, others just seem to make it up as they go along. And It's an important skill for children to learn, especially, is which reports need taking seriously, which pieces of information are trustworthy, and which ones aren't. And of course, to show that you're trustworthy, you have to earn it. You have to have a record of trust, of trustworthiness, a record of being accurate, indefatigable, careful, cautious, and um, often quite sceptical. So there's a lot for a child to learn, to gradually work his or her way into the human world of reports, reception of reports, rejection of reports.
1: It sounds like you're not particularly sympathetic to the idea that the fundamental terms that are used in the way we talk about truth are problematic. So what really struck me about the Strawson paper that you had included in your, your compilation that we just discussed was his take on facts. Again, we think we understand what correspondence is. Well, it's correspondence with the facts. Well, what is a fact? Is a fact a thing in the world? Well, okay, it's a way of describing the things in the world. Well, then how do our beliefs, we want to line up with the facts. How do we compare the belief with the fact? It seems that, as Strawson says, those two are made for each other. It's not that the fact is a thing in the world and a belief is a thing in our head. A fact is something that a logician should be able to see through, he says, and we really should get rid of talk of facts altogether. And state of affairs is not any better. And situation is not any better. And these are all very fundamental things that people would just say, oh, of course, I understand truth. There's no problem there. I think Strawson is at least pointing out there actually really is something for philosophy to do right at the yes. outset. Yes. I think perhaps in the 19th century,
2: well, this, these debates have flourished in their very different idioms. The particular example of an area where facts are kind of fugitive, where you can't get hold of them, was often used as history. So history, in history, the facts, well, are they there? They once were there, but they've gone into the great grinder of time. And yet you can still think it's true that Henry VIII wore red velvet slippers, or false, that Henry VIII wore, wore red velvet slippers. But you can't check either of those beliefs by going out and finding the facts. You might go and look at archives. You might go and look at pictures of the of the time, paintings. You might not find anything that tells you whether he wore red slippers or not. And yet we think it's either true that he did or false that he did. So facts are a very fugitive, a very um, they're not a rock you can stand on. When the seas of opinion are floating around, and when the seas of opinion can't be calmed by inquiry, then facts don't stand as separate landmarks that can help you navigate them. The facts have gone in the case of history.
0: And I think for that reason, I think it
2: can be unhelpful to cast the
0: problem of today's deception. The problem of sources of truth in terms of facts, you know, newspaper outlets saying, well, we just, we'd have the facts or even saying, I want a news outlet, which just gives me the facts. Well, really what I want is I want reporters who give me their firsthand experiences, even if they are flawed in some sense, you know, if a reporter is in Iraq, he's going up a spiral staircase with Marines and there are people firing down from above, something strange happens, something that seems out of place. What I want is his firsthand report. I don't want his second level of analysis of that where he gets rid of the firsthand report in favor of the facts. I don't want him to be the arbiter of the facts and the deliverer of the facts. I want reports, which then I can check against other reports. I can gauge in various types of analyses. That cross-check is just one of many. We look at psychological plausibility. We look at the internal structure of the account. We do all sorts of things. To make those assessments, but we ought to emphasize: as consumers of news, we are assessors and not simply passive recipients of the right, trustworthy source of the quote unquote
2: the facts. Absolutely, you know. It's sometimes said that uh, reporters are told, uh, "Just stick to the facts; don't give your interpretations of them." Well, that's okay in a level. We know what it means. You know, you stick to your observations. You stick to things as you experience them. But, of course, it's philosophically quite suspect because even your senses are interpreting things as you see them. I once was in the front row of a show by the conjurer Ricky Jay. He's probably the greatest illusionist of the 20th century. And I saw eggs coming out of his ears. I saw empty hands with sleeves rolled right back producing Packs of cards, producing pigeons, producing God knows what. Just stick to the facts. Well, the fact would be, I seem to see all those things. <laughs> um, it, the fact is not that he was producing pigeons out of thin air or eggs out of his ear or whatever. But by God, it looked as though he was. <laughs> <laughs> but a reporter is entitled to add a little bit of interpretation. Yes if, yes. if he saw a gun go off and somebody fall down, he's entitled to report that somebody shot somebody.
0: Right. If he sees, I was saying, I was trying to come up with some him seeing something strange and out of place. You know, say a uh, a bald eagle flies down the staircase. Yeah. You know, do you report that or not? I think you. Yeah. You report that and then let the
3: chips fall where they may. So that sort of thing. Right. The trustworthiness looms large here, right? And what are the characteristics of trustworthiness are, even in interpretation. So, you know, we were saying there's something like, you know, reporting the facts or presenting the observations. And then there's going to be characteristics of the rendering of those interpretations. There are sort of those kind of low-level interpretations we're talking about, you know, like, well, is the cat on the mat, you know, that kind of thing. But the, the ones that we're most interested in are ones that involve extrapolating lots of different observations together to see what kind of causal thing is happening, you know, what, what's behind this refugee crisis, that kind of thing. And that's where the characteristics of trustworthiness come in, in, in the kind of explanation and things like you know stridency you know whether their claims seem to be overstepping whether they're using particular accounts and also you know for me like when i read something of a controversial topic what i most like to see and which really accentuates the trustworthiness to me which i suppose could also be faked is a sequence of going back over the same material again and questioning the very motive that you had in the first place you know have i covered my ground and have I responded
2: to objections, that kind of thing? And a certain kind of caution. Yes, caution, that's the right word. Of course, as you rightly say, that can be faked. <laughs> um, I think there's a, an adage uh, given to actors, sincerity. Uh, once you can fake that, you've made it. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a problem there. But of course, there are signs, as you rightly say, of sincerity, you know, caution. And that's why the good newspapers, I think, are cautious and they're prepared to admit mistakes. I wonder, does Fox News ever admit to telling lies? I doubt it. I don't think they would call them lies. No. They, I don't know if they have errata that
3: say, well, we made a mistake about X, Y, or Z. I, I actually don't know. Yeah, no, of course they, they do that
0: now and again. Is this a good, uh, speaking of Fox <laughs> and their terrible aesthetics... Not just their problem with facts, but their terrible aesthetics uh, to move on to uh, uh, truths of taste, truths art.
2: Truths of,
1: yes, yes. Well, just in terms of talking about part two, the overall strategy is to, it seems to be to relate the normativity of truth-telling to normativity in general. Cool that you start the section off by talking about art, which is, as you say, the area where there's sort of least, least agreement. It seems like, no, everybody has their own tastes and you can't argue with anybody, but really we don't really think that. And so that's used as a way to get into the idea of normativity in general, of course, ethical normativity that we're familiar with and normativity in reasoning. Of course, there seem to be better ways of arguing and worse ways of arguing and obey the logical laws of deduction. And some don't, and sort of just looking at normativity as a whole and saying, What truth is, is a way of expressing, is a move in that language game. If we have to define truth, it becomes the ideal limit. But what we start in our discussion is looking at just better or worse in these different normativities. And truth is what we're aiming at, at any of those things, whether it's giving an accurate aesthetic judgment or an ethical judgment or in any scientific area or in history – So just being able to describe why we have normativity at all, given that we are naturalists, given that there's just people walking around talking about things and doing things and achieving successes and not achieving successes where do we get normativity after out of that it has to be looking somehow at human nature it has to be looking at somehow at actual practices as it you say. it feels like you're trying to jump to the ethics chapter mark no i'm just trying to give in this is the strategy of part 2 yeah
2: I, that's absolutely right thank you mark that's exactly what i'm trying to do i'm trying to say that even in an area like aesthetics you know if you look at the pure idea, you know, is it true that Mozart was a great composer? If you make the word true sound sort of divine enough, then one say, oh, well, you know, we all like him, but um, truth, well, I'm not sure. And you start sounding like a skeptic. But if you look at what actually happens in an aesthetic discussion, when people say, well, listen to the creativity here, or listen to the originality, or listen to the, the way that the Plangency illustrates sadness, which is just what you need at this point in the opera, and point you to the nitty-gritty, the detail. Then, of course, we rapidly learn they're people worth listening to. They're people who aren't. They're people who deserve the title of a good critic, a good guide. Often it's a matter of guide. It's not a matter of proof. But they guide you to hearing things you didn't hear, seeing things you didn't see, understanding the poem in a way you didn't previously understand it. And We regard that as learning, which I think is very important, actually. It's not just changing the pleasures. It's actually learning something about what the artist has done. And it's those processes of listening and learning and discriminating and inquiring. It's, again, a, the word inquiry covers it. But that's what inquiry is in the example of music, those are valuable activities, at least if you think they're not, then you're maybe beyond my reach. I can't prove to you that they are, but you're missing something. You're missing out on life. You know, although it's very familiar and all the great writers, Kant, Hume, started with the idea that de gustibus est disputandum, about taste there's no disputing, there's no arguing. Well, it may be true there's no arguing because you can't prove to people that they're wrong in these areas. But you can eventually build up a case which might show some people that other people are wrong, (laughs) that there are are such things as failures, there's such things as meretricious works, there's such things as foolish tastes or tastes which are too coarse or crude not to be improved. I think we should be very grateful to the critics who manage to show that to us, even if they're people who won't listen. So there you've got the idea of an improvement, which I think will mark by saying, yes, that's true, that's right. I hadn't noticed that. Beethoven improves on Mozart in the expression of a certain kind of romantic hopes, where Mozart is resigned, Beethoven is not. I don't say that's a great judgment, but it's the kind of judgment which might lead you to say, gosh, this guy's worth listening to. He's somebody who knows his music. He knows the development. He can alert me to things that I wasn't previously aware of. And if that's true even in aesthetics, then it's going to be true in ethics. It's going to be true in a lot of difficult areas. That's my hope.
0: <laughs> you have a nice way of putting this on page 85. It may be right that in matters of taste, dispute is out of place, but this is not because any opinion is as good as any other. It is because it is the collaboration and imaginative discrimination that wins the day, not dispute. Rather than argue someone into agreement, we hope to use persuasion, put things in different lights, to remind them of similar things that have delighted them or to excite their imagination. It is not a matter of syllogisms and proofs, but of leading another to assimilate whatever response we find appropriate. And this will be a process dependent upon patience and concern, like any process of give and take in which education and learning go hand in hand. You go on to say, in aesthetic matters, we are not so clearly likely to get our comeuppance if we are careless, What interests me is it's sort of an aesthetic line of inquiry. It's not that we are necessarily going to get contradictory evidence, but it's that we may have a greater or lesser scope to the amount of contextual knowledge we bring to the experience, something like that.
2: Yes. Good. That's right. And of course, there are people who who can tell differences others others are blind to or deaf to and can encourage you and perhaps enable you to hear or see or feel those differences it's interesting that then we regard ourselves not just as having changed but as having improved we got hold of something we were previously unaware of and the metaphor being blind or deaf is obviously you know the one we use and i find that very interesting because you know, if somebody is literally blind or deaf, you think they can't receive certain kinds of information about the world, which others can, not by direct means of hearing or seeing. And in the case of blindness or deafness, in the case of art, again, it's they can look at the picture or hear the sounds. They can go to the symphony and hear the sounds, but they can't hear what other people can hear and they can't see what other people can see. We're all to some extent in that. You know, we're not gods. We're all to some extent capable of improvement. But uh, I think we're grateful to the people who hold out their hand and say you can improve in this direction.
0: That idea of us changing is really important because in the end, all of this right is relative to our cognitive constitutions as human beings, right? So our particular constitutions of human beings have a big role in determining what is going to seem Aesthetically pleasing and there's some universality to that. And I think Hume actually makes a point of that. I'm not sure that you mentioned it in this account, but I think Hume appeals to the fact that because we have these common cognitive constitutions, we can make objective aesthetic judgments by appealing to them. But you know, I think Simon, what you bring to this conversation is the idea that in its finer detail, that constitution can change and we can think of one constitution as better than another in the sense of being more refined, more expansive, more attentive to certain details, so on and so forth.
2: Yeah, it's controversial the extent to which Hume, in that great essay of The Standard of Taste, which is widely available on the web, so just go and read it. It's a fabulous essay. It's controversial to what extent he depends on or imagines there's going to be a consensus that time will tell That in, in, at the end of time. Durable admiration. I think is the phrase, right? He does use durable admiration. Of course, durable enough might be fine. Uh, that doesn't imply that we've got a, a skyhook taking us to the end of time, enabling us to see what the gods would like. What Hume does, though, I think is beautifully bring out the virtues of what he calls the good critic discrimination, good sense, practice, you know, a stable of comparisons that he can make. And all those things, I think, are dead right. I mean, You know, if somebody asks me what, say, some of the merits or demerits of some jazz pianist, I'd be completely at a loss because I don't listen to jazz piano and I don't know what the standards are, you know, what counts as a good performance, what counts as a bad performance. I can go as far as I like it or I didn't understand it, but I'd be very hesitant about presenting that as a judgment as opposed to a an expression of a very subjective reaction.
1: Generally, when they play with their fingers, that's the good kind. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I can go
2: that far. On the other hand, you know, if you and I go to Grand Canyon together, and, and I say, that's, oh, God, look at that. That's a knockout. And it's your first time. You've never seen it before. And you say, I wonder if the McDonald's is open. You know, we're so out of touch. You're so... Coarse and stupid and poorish, that our (laughs) friendship starts to decline. (laughs) So judgments taste matter. You can't be on all fours with somebody whose judgments are completely out of line with yours. You were right. It's a question of uh, cognitive identity, cognitive similarity. But it's of course it might also be worth separating out a sort of affective similarity. Hume does that. He knows that the tastes of young people are apt to be a little bit different from the taste of middle-aged people. The young man whose passions are warm prefers the poetry, the love poetry of Ovid. The old guy who's, you know, been around the block, he's going to go and read The Economist or whatever the (laughs) 18th century equivalent was. So Hume is very kind to human difference, although he does have a sort of little drumbeat of we'd all be similar ideally there's an enlightenment belief in human nature which i think the 20th and 21st century find harder to really uh, make any sense of
3: i mean what we're talking about here is that there are human capacities that are worthy of cultivation or not having them similarly cultivated leads to poor friendships right you're not sensitive to the same sorts of things right and that there's Something lost in not cultivating them at all. We were starting, well, you know, you're, you're kind of boorish or deeply unsophisticated in your opinion. There might be a judgment that that's bad. But there's really behind that, I think, a lamenting of not having reached potential,
2: right? Yeah, exactly. When you learn from the good critic, if you do ever learn from things from good critics, you're grateful because you feel they have given you something that you hadn't got before. I think that's a great pleasure in life, actually, and uh, something for which gratitude is in place. I'm not a wishy washy aesthete, but I just enjoy appreciation. If I can appreciate
1: things, I like to. Well, and one of the things I want to track as we're going through these chapters is to what extent true and false are comparable to good and evil, or in this case, aesthetically good versus aesthetically poor. That it seems like, you know, normally we think of when we are talking about true and false, is that we're aiming at the true. It's a unified thing. It's a standard. Whereas in aesthetics, what you're talking about, there are lots of truths involved. And some of these truths are, you know, there is something to appreciate in this work. There is something worth criticizing in this work. But the set of all those facts doesn't come down to necessarily, this work is aesthetically good. This work is aesthetically... Like, if you really think in those binary terms... That's not what appreciation is about. Appreciation is about getting at the nuance and the different, so there are different ways, right? The beautiful versus the sublime. Those are both ways in which a work of art can be great, but they're somewhat diametrically opposed. We've talked about that in other episodes. It could be that that's just a disanalogy between the good on the one hand and the true on the other hand, or the aesthetically good on the one hand the true on the other hand. Or one piece that we didn't follow up on in the Austin article that we just read was he actually did have something like this criticism that I just gave of aesthetic goodness of truth to say that we are too focused on is it true, is it not true whereas true really should just be you know is one of many terms in a language game that include misleading, useful, exaggerated, it's applicable to this limited category of experience but not applicable over here that there are just so many things we can say which ultimately I think come down to different ways of being useful in one or another context and Strassen just rejected that, you know, that actually truth really is in, in a, just a fundamentally different logical category than these other things. Do you want to kind of weigh in on this analogy or disanalogy between the two kinds of terms? And yeah,
2: a lot of what, uh, something that Austin actually said about aesthetics was we shouldn't talk about the ugly and the beautiful, we should talk about the dainty and the dumpy. And what he meant was you've got to get down to the nitty gritty, you've got to get down to the actual features of actual works that you're faced with so you know if i go to the national gallery and i'm being shown around by the director of the national gallery i'd be very disappointed if his conversation consisted saying, that's beautiful that's not that's more beautiful than that um you know it'd be like he's a child or something this is the wing of the ugly stuff (laughs) yeah that's right (laughs) yes this is what you want him to say is that's very interesting Uh, it's an interesting work but it's very much in the Baroque style that was actually developed by somebody else and so on and and those individual remarks may remain true for any remark Uh, it's true that P same thing as P if if that is a derivative work in the style of Caravaggio then uh, it's true that it's a derivative work in the style of Caravaggio now whether I like it more or like it less because of that may be more up to me but at least I've got a, a new basis, an expanded basis for my appreciation, my like or dislike. And a like I may sort of come with to begin with might evaporate. So maybe that the truths he gives me are ones which give the work the thumbs down or the other way up. It's, the truths just they expand the basis on which I feel able to, with any confidence, express a like or a dislike for the thing. Or not just like or dislike, but also a sense of wonderment, sense of learning from it, sense of gratitude to the artist and so on. All of which might be slightly different. I could be grateful to an artist for music I dislike, for example, mm-hmm. because it's done something. I mean, a lot, a lot of contemporary art obviously sets itself out not to be beautiful, but to be disruptive and subversive and undermining of bourgeois complacency, such as academics like myself have, and so on. <laughs> You've got to appreciate that for what it's trying to do. You make the point in the end that we
0: associate art with an increase in understanding. Yeah. you talking there about Collingwood. And what is art, which I did not know... And I did not know he's the most impressive philosopher of art in the 20th century. It's something we should read, but yeah. you, you talk about his rejection of the idea that the goal of art is to arouse certain feelings in others. Rather, you say the point of expression must be to make clear to ourselves as well as potentially to others exactly what we feel. The expression is addressed primarily to ourselves. So this idea that we it seems to be that we might feel something, but vaguely in some sense, there's an element of inquiry here as well. You know, we might vaguely feel it, we might not quite understand it, and the point is to make it more precise or rich or
2: something like that. And so in that sense, we increase our understanding. Yes, well, that's certainly the message I take from Collingwood. He was very keen to distinguish between what he called art. I mean, he's slightly de he's directive. He's a bit like Ruskin, he wants you to listen to him. He's a bit of a preacher. But putting that aside... What I take from Collingwood is this distinction between what he calls art as craft and art proper. Art as craft is art with a given end. It's a technique or technology, if you like. So, for example, if you go and work for Disney Studios, they may tell you, you know, you've got to do something which has the effect of making the audience weep at this point. Okay, that's art as craft, because you know what you're setting out to do. There may be art as uh, another whose categories is art as magic, where the aim of art is to arouse emotions in an audience. It's like the drum beats of a corroboree or a um, shamanic ritual where you're, you know the emotions that you need to arouse in the audience and you're good at doing it. And that's often art as magic. That's for Collingwood, not art. Art is when you're wrestling with the medium, as a medium of expression of your own feelings, which is satisfying to you. I mean, this is what you want to say to yourself in that medium. And that's where art takes off. And I think it's essentially, in a sense, a self exploration. You know, well, a lot of words here are very treacherous. Art as expression often you know, gets you in mind of Jackson Pollock or somebody riding around a canvas with paint on a bicycle.
0: The other part of this is the imaginative activity that the artist brings to the work and that the audience reader can take out of it, as the quote-unquote, you're quoting what your imagined experience of total activity, which reminds me actually a little of Kant and Schopenhauer, this idea of sort of getting into a world where we can absent ourselves from mere appetite or mere will and be sort of doing something that is, I don't know, evocative of some sort of freedom. You talk about the sense of life opening up or revealing itself to us through great art.
2: Yeah, it's very difficult to find words. And this is, I think, a very, you know, to me, it's an important area. I guess the second half of the book is rather contrastive in that I find aesthetics important, ethics very important. Religion, I could do without. But, of course, religious people will say in the same way that religious experience opens yourself to yourself. It opens up dimensions of experience which uh, you hitherto didn't have and so on and so on. And mystics throughout the ages have tried to express that, often while saying it's inexpressible. <laughs> you have to experience it to know about it. Well, I, I'm not a great fan of inexpressible knowledge, but I am a fan of communication and I'm a fan of self-understandings. So I think art falls on the right side of a skeptical ditch, which I'm inclined to draw. But other people draw it in different places, and I'm not uh, dogmatic about it.
1: So just to, to spell out this, one of the other parallels here between the aesthetic and the true and the false and the right and the wrong, at one point you say something like, it's not sentences that are true and false. That's not the primary thing, but utterers that are or are not justified in asserting something in some particular circumstance. And so in this one, it's not primarily aesthetic judgments that are true or false, but it's judges That are or are not justified in making those judgments in particular circumstances. So there are good and bad judges. There are good and bad scientists. That's sort of the primary thing. And then to maybe translate this to make the transition to the next chapter here, it's, again, we've had many episodes on the difference between is it right and wrong acts? Well, no, the sort of more modern, well, I'd say modern, but it started with Aristotle. But the more enduring, <laughs> the more attractive way of approaching ethics is virtue ethics. It's, it's really that there are primarily actors that have developed, have cultivated the right virtues. That's the primary thing we should be studying. And from then we can reflect on what right and wrong actions those kind of people typically would point to. The way we determine whether a sentence is true or false is, did we use the right epistemic machinery to come up with that statement that it's true or false, and the same thing it 's not that we can 't just say murder is wrong you know it 's not that oh well, if we just look at an admirable person do they murder or not that 's how we tell if murder is wrong that 's taking this a little too literally, but still, we determine specifically you know whether right or wrong by looking at people who think carefully about ethical action and the sort of considerations that parallel what you've described as being a good judge, a good person that helps, yeah, advance our critical understanding of works of art is advancing our critical understanding of actions and what might be desirable or undesirable about committing them.
2: Yeah, that's wonderful, Mark. Thanks. Yeah, it goes back to a criticism I made of the coherence theory of truth in part one, which is that the coherence theory thinks that the whole domain of justification is belief A bears in this way on belief B. So it's, a, as it were, a dyadic relation between two beliefs. And it's only within the field of beliefs that you get justification. And I want to say, no, it's not a question of that. That's abstracting from the fact that it's we who believe things and we who believe things in the light of activities, such as making observations. So the field of justification is more truly represented as person A is justified by procedure B, in coming to belief C. So you've got at least three elements in the relationship. One of the elements is, of course, the person A's relationship to the world, which is mediated through observation. So that was, uh, and here too, it's the same thing. It's not just that you've got the work of art and the critic, and it's is the critic justified, bang, bang. You've got the work of art, the critic's experience, the critic's taste, the... Here, uh, it's a very complicated field when you come to something as delicate as aesthetics. And, of course, we know there are divergences of taste. As I mentioned, Hume talks about faultless divergence, the young versus the old. Maybe, in some respects, the male versus the female. I don't know. I don't, don't go there if I can help it. But young and old, I think, categories we're still allowed to use and that gives rise to faultless divergence. You just expect a difference of taste. But, of course, that doesn't necessarily reflect on the value of any particular work. It's valuable insofar as the young like it. It's not valuable insofar as the old don't like it. But we don't have to quarrel. We only have to quarrel when it goes beyond aesthetics, I think, into the domain of ethics. So you might quarrel about Spanish Baroque painting because it is a pornography of violence. And that's, if I said that about it, I think I could justify the remark, I believe. But it also means I've started to stray into a domain of an ethical rejection of the artistic style.
1: You well, know, that might be the, I mean, where the analogy seems to come apart for me is that if we say, again, like Collingwood, that you can't just define art as what is entertaining or what brings pleasure or something like that. A work of art sets its own values. It sets its own laws. A good work of art sort of creates its own values. It is an autonomous entity that is... It's making uh, its own explorations, yes. Yes, that's quite different than you know what we... Well, I guess if you're Nietzsche, that's how ethics works as well. But the way that you've identified ethics, building on Hume and Smith and then Kant as a social endeavor by which we judge... You know, we start with human nature. What are our inclinations? But then we also look at what inclinations do we actually approve of that we have? So it's not just that I want to eat chocolate. It's that how much do I think that that's appropriate and how much I think that's appropriate is inevitably going to come down to reflecting on whether it's an impartial spectator or, you know, related by some abstraction to what other people around me actually think. So it's a cooperative endeavor with a good amount of abstraction built into it. So we're not subjectivists, but we're also not cultural relativists either. That our particular society might be confused about this. Still, that gives us the starting point for how we judge things and sort of project on what could be a superior ethical judgment that passes the understanding of my current society.
2: Absolutely Mark and of course that is the big difference between aesthetics and ethics is I think that aesthetics is essentially much more personal personal to the artist personal to the spectator or the hearer in a way that ethics is not ethics is essentially a matter of what we have to agree upon whereas art is not essentially a matter of what we have to agree upon it's a much more interestingly a matter of what i can be told by this artist doing whatever he or she is doing. You know, if we differ enough aesthetically, then we're going to have difficulty being on all fours with each other. It's not quite the same as if I discover that you, I don't know, are going for various vices of an important and potentially dangerous kind. If I learn that you're a bomb maker for ISIS, I don't just agree to differ, I go to the
1: police. I think you point out the social aspect of this is also pragmatic in that coordination is necessary for living together, right? What counts as a negative moral action is that it just doesn't work. And that's, you know, the way Kant points at, what if everybody did that? Or, you know, just thinking about somebody as being a parasite on society. Even if my lying to you now doesn't cause a breakdown in social order, it's the kind of thing that in particular circumstances, we can see that it creates friction unnecessarily or perhaps. Although
0: Kant thought he had innovated on moral sense theory and virtue ethics, and he's very explicit. I think he was a moral sense theorist, actually, for quite a period of time before he moved on. Yes, he was. I mean, his argument against this sort of foundation for ethics would be that really, ultimately, this is all a series of hypothetical imperatives. If X makes you happy or if X will allow you to avoid social penalty or supports the social order, however you want to put it, then you ought not to do X. But that sort of ought doesn't have the same sort of significance as a categorical ought or ought not. Simon, you
2: didn't really talk about that. but I didn't. Obviously, it's intensely controversial whether Kant succeeds in making the categorical imperative part and parcel different from the various hypothetical imperatives that we often understandably live by. You know, if you want people to like you, don't lie to them, that kind of thing. Immediately after Kant, a whole slew of philosophers, John Stuart Mill and others, said that his endeavor to separate out the categorical from the hypothetical just failed. Of course, there are imperatives which don't refer to your wants and desires. If you say, I don't care about the welfare of people, I'm going to lie, I don't care that it's going to do me any harm or anything, There is an imperative which goes, you shouldn't lie whether you want to or not, or whether you care about it or not. And that's, in that sense, categorical. It's taking it away from the hypothesis that you want something. So it's not like if you want to avoid getting wet, you better carry an umbrella. It's like you better carry an umbrella whether you want to avoid getting wet or not. Now that, of course, would be a stupid categorical imperative. But we do have that distinction, and I applaud it. But, of course, it's not clear then that you've got a distinction between you ought to do it whether the interests of society are served by it or not or whether the interests of society are served by this kind of action or not. I mean, that would be a a really, really categorical with a big C imperative because it would be saying that the norm has nothing whatever to do with social utility. And a lot of authors have pushed back against that. Mill probably the first the articulate author who said that Kant's attempt to remove the imperative from anything like that is a grotesque failure. I think that was Mill's polite philosophical <laughs> language at that point. So there's a whole issue there about Kant. Of course, there is. There are lots of philosophers, especially in the United States and on the continent, who think he made a success of it. Lots of others. Probably in pragmatist Britain who thinks that he didn't make a success of it. Right. I think
0: an error theorist would come along though and say Sure, that's really what we have to do. We really boil these things down to hypothetical imperatives. If you want to be happy, or in general, if people want to be happy, they should do X, Y, and Z. But they would say, well, but that doesn't really capture the actual content of the concept odd as it's used daily by people. And that concept essentially ends up being empty or not supported, really, having no... Basis in the real world, let's say. Do you think this evaporates from a.
2: Yeah, I do. Well, this is another aspect of my philosophy, which isn't particularly on show in this book, but I spent quite a lot of my career saying that error theorists are wrong because really ought is a kind of impersonal version of don't. Don't do it. Don't do it whether you want to or not. There's nothing, as it were, that disappears from such an imperative. Don't do it. Oh, but I want to do it. I said, don't do it. It's not as if the imperative loses its social intention, its uh, intention to dictate your action in the light of what you want or what you feel like or in light of anything else. Just don't do it. And I think ought is a version of don't do it. So I'm not sympathetic to the error theorist view that ought somehow evaporates either if we don't have a god or if we don't have some kind of backing to ethics, which Kant thought he provided. Moral facts.
1: Yeah, moral facts and so on. That sounds like you're performativist, just like Strawson, that yeah. it doesn't have cognitive content, but it, as a rhetorical device, it's absolutely essential.
2: Yeah, I don't think that giving a command is just using a rhetorical device. It's performing a very definite kind of speech act, which has compliance conditions, and, of course, it may be backed by threats or by authority, by all kinds of social mechanisms. Or it may be backed by none. You know, if I command you to take off your headphones, there's no particular reason for you to listen to me. Because I don't have authority and there's nothing going to happen to you if you just don't listen to me. So command may or may not be in place or a sensible thing to inject into a social situation. But frequently it is. When the commands are social commands, don't lie. Then there's going to be a profound social backing to them, as people who don't obey the command will
1: soon enough find out. I'm taking that as you just scolding me at length for using the term rhetorical as opposed (laughs) to (laughs) saying functional. Surely not at length, no, no. You're saying to Mark, don't use that. <laughs> Don't use rhetoric. No, no, th- <laughs> but so fu- functional, in other words, would capture the, the performative. Yes. It has a function. It's just not an information conveying function.
2: And I think that's the background to ethics. I, I'm what's called in the trade now an expressivist. The idea is the speech act that lies behind expressing norms and so forth is fundamentally one of either giving an imperative or expressing an attitude. There are various nuances here rather than giving information. It's on the practical side of things. It's not on the information-giving side of things. Of course, that's a division which itself is going to be contested, but still, let's use it. And then the ought is what I call a propositional reflection of the command. It's as it were that it transforms the command from being actually that speech act into a proposition which is one you assent to only if you're inclined to endorse the commanding. If I say, I think that people ought to be kind to animals, I'm in effect saying, I endorse the commanding of people to be kind to animals. That's the expression. That's what you could take away about myself from my saying that.
1: It sounds like you're still open to the idea of moral truths. I mean, that's the whole... Oh, yes. This is what we're concerned with in this series of chapters, as opposed to, we read some Charles Leslie Stevenson back in the day, many years ago, where if you say... Being cruel to animals is bad. It's boo being cruel to animals. It's non-cognitivism. This is an advance over non-cognitivism of the 1930s or whenever that was. Yeah, well,
2: Stevenson was a little later, I think, 1950, but it was the same, exactly the same. It's interesting, the history here, I think. The writers that I admire more, in a way, were the writers of the 18th century, sometimes called the Scottish sentimentalists, Hutchison, who was, I think, Wes said, was the first influence on Kant. Kant was a Scottish sentimentalist. Well, he was a German sentimentalist before he became an out-and-out rationalist in ethics. And the Scotsman, uh, this is uh, Hutchison, Hume, Adam Smith, they thought there's absolutely no problem about seeing ethics as an expression of attitudes and sentiments which have a social role which they could describe and rely on various social mechanisms, psychological mechanisms, including, for example, that of sympathy, which they also played up. Then in the 20th century, this became associated with kind of slightly crazy subjectivism, which I think forgot about the social roles and purposes and said, oh, when I come up with ethical remarks, I'm just sounding off, I'm just expressing my emotions, I'm saying boo to this and hooray to that. And that was very one-dimensional. It didn't do justice to the social role and function and therefore the meaning of ethical remarks. And then in a second wave, people like Hare perhaps started out, I give him credit, but then I myself and Alan Gibbard of Michigan, very, very fine philosopher, we came along and said, no, 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 we can explain the way in which ethics gets bedecked, if you like, with the trappings of giving propositions, asserting propositions, and then using notions like true or false without blushing. We can give an account of how that comes about, which doesn't reintroduce metaphysics, doesn't reintroduce gods, doesn't reintroduce normative facts or anything like that trying to systematize the way in which we conduct our social planning and our boundaries we draw on conduct the necessities and the permissions that we're happy with and that's an essential social function and we found the language to do it in so it's a functional account of that language And that, I think, was what the Scotsmen were after. And what was kind of missed out in the decades when it was called emotivism or prescriptivism, because that made it sound too simple. It didn't do justice to the full social
1: trappings or the social functions of morality. And you'll perhaps be pleased to know that you and Gibbard are mentioned in the first sentence of the Stanford Encyclopedia Charles Leslie Stevenson uh, <laughs> article as him being a forerunner to your work, which his big book came out in 1944. So he was writing through the 30s to the 50s. Okay, and the anyway, <laughs> okay. <laughs> we should probably jump to the rest of normativity, normativity of reason here to kind of finish off.
2: Yeah, reason. Well, I could start with a very subjectivist sounding remark, which is that in general, we say that A is a reason for B. Again, we've got to be careful of the abstractions. But a proposition is a good reason, at any rate, for somebody to change a belief or form a plan or change an intention or issue a command or whatever he's doing. A is a good reason for B. I think we say by way of commending a movement which is guided from A towards B. So if I say, why is Mark speaking close to the microphone? I say, well, it's probably because or his reason is or the good reason for speaking close to the microphone is the sound recording will be better. I'm commending taking the fact or putative fact that the sound recording will be better as a reason for staying close to the microphone because I think that a movement of mind guided by the fact it's going to be better to acting in that way that's a movement of mind I can endorse. So I think we talk about reason like ethical language in general. It's fundamentally a matter of having a positive attitude towards something. Take the very simple case A is a reason for B. I'm in general prepared to endorse moving from A towards B. That's the simple formula. Now, of course, that makes it sound subjective and all the rest of it. But then I will have my reasons for thinking that A is a reason for B. There's a recursive process here. I don't just sound off. I think that given what Mark's trying to do, which is make a recording, then it's surely commendable that he takes the fact that the sound quality will be better as a reason for moving where it will be better. And if you dispute with me, then you say, no, that's not a reason for staying close to the microphone. You might disapprove of Mark's intention. You might disapprove his knowledge about sound recording, but there's something you disapprove of, which I had failed to take into account, or that you think I took into account in the wrong way or something. And that's what disputes about reasoning are about. So you say that having had a conversation with Kim Song yoon is a reason for liking Donald Trump. And I say, ooh, hang on. I know we had a conversation, but I'm not very sure how it turned out or how it's going to turn out. I'm not sure it's a reason for changing my attitude to Donald Trump. That's then discussable. You might say, oh, we know how it's going to turn out. It's going to turn out with denuclearization of Korea and all sorts of good stuff. And I say, well, let's wait and see. There's many a slip and so on. So those are conversations about reasons. But they're fundamentally in the domain of endorsing or rejecting the endorsement of movements of the mind from absorbing one piece of information to changing your mind in a certain direction. Those are conversations about reasons, but they're fundamentally in the domain of endorsing or rejecting the endorsement of movements of the mind from absorbing one piece of information to changing your mind in a certain direction. So they're reasons, you know, in connection with all kinds of things.
3: We're essentially connecting, putting all in one bucket, right? Calling something true, calling something beautiful, and calling something reasonable all have very similar difficulties with themselves.
2: They do. They do indeed. Oh, thank you very much. That's absolutely excellent, Dylan. It is. It's a unified approach, guided by Peirce's motto, that we don't look at the thoughts, the pure ideas, the vagabonds with no human habitation. But we look at the way these things actually work in the processes of our minds. In a sense, I'm a very 18th century philosopher because they started with the actual psychologies of people. Now, we were taught not to do that by Frege, but I am a little bit of a traditionalist. I could say I'm going back to Aristotle, actually.
1: Is there a role, though, still in your view for the open question argument? You gave a version of this in your chapter on deflationism by saying it's the transparency requirement. So we were saying deflationism means that adding is true doesn't add any cognitive impact. It adds performative impact, not rhetorical, but performative (laughs) impact. G. Moore put this in terms of ethics, that you can say, oh, well, the good is doing what brings the most happiness to the most people. If you could sensibly ask, is bringing the most happiness to most people, is that actually good? Just the fact that that sentence makes sense means that at least it's not a definition of good. It's not an a priori matter that those two things are equivalent. In the same way, you're saying for true, if you say, well, truth is correspondence you give some elaborate account of what correspondence consists in or this theory of how legitimate beliefs get incorporated into the web of belief that then has to overall be coherent. And you could ask, but is that actually true? Couldn't we have something that is perfectly coherent with all of my other beliefs? It's perfectly coherent with the norms of reasoning that society has impressed upon me. In fact, maybe we could even think what minds are fated to agree on if they investigated, but you could still ask, But is that actually true? Most of the places where you name drop Moore here, it's just to reject him, to say, that is the highfalutin talk that is interfering with our focus on the concrete practices. Forget about that. But it seems like in just the issue of transparency requirement that you do actually retain some version of Moore's open question argument.
2: Yes, I do. I do indeed. Oh, it would be a terrible act of disloyalty for me not to because I was actually taught at Cambridge by G. Moore's disciple and editor a man called Casimir Louis, who's a a wonderful teacher. At least, you know, don't take me for an example. He was a wonderful teacher. (laughs) Um, I would feel like a parasite if I abandoned the open question argument. But it has its limitations, or it's got to be applied quite carefully. By that I mean Moore is absolutely right, that if somebody advances something as a simple semantic definition, then it closes a question. So if I say, look, the dictionary definition of a vixen is that it's a female fox. That's just an equivalence, a linguistic equivalence, peculiar to the English language. Vixens are female foxes. And if somebody comes up and says, well, in spite of all that, I'm not really sure vixens are female foxes. I've lost them. I don't know what they could possibly be meaning by that, unless they're trying to say that my account of the dictionary is wrong, which I could settle by looking at the dictionary. On the other hand, if I say that goodness is the greatest happiness of the greatest number, and somebody comes along and says, well, I'm not really sure about that, I can't settle it by looking at a dictionary. I can't say that's just what the word means. I might say, what's your problem? But suppose they then say, well, my problem is that the happiness of the greatest number might be furthered by unjust behavior towards a minority, or that the happiness of the greatest number might be furthered by the procuring the judicial execution of innocent people, then I've got to start worrying. I'm now in an ethical debate. I'm not in a semantic debate. I can't settle that by pointing to the dictionary. And that's, I think, the nub of Moore's problem, Moore's argument, rather, the problem Moore sets. Now, I think Moore was historically completely at sea. I think he thought that John Stuart Mill and others advanced their conception of ethics as somehow authorized by the dictionary. And they didn't. None of them did. They all knew they were in an exercise of trying to get people to accept a standard. And you could reject the standard. Just as I, somebody might say, look, a good car just means fast car. That's it. That's full stop. I say, no, I'm not sure about that. And they can go on campaigning for using speed as a criteria of goodness. But I can campaign for saying, no, I think uh, reliability is more important. And I think speed is a dangerous virtue because people misuse it and all sorts of things. So I've got all sorts of reasons for disliking that standard. And they may have their reasons for advancing it. But again, we're essentially in a practical dispute. It can't be solved by the dictionary. If a dictionary pretended to solve it, it would be exceeding its own authority. So whenever in a moral or evaluative debate somebody says, oh, that's just what it means, uh-uh. no it isn't. Or if it is just what it means, maybe some words have their meanings straddling the divide between pure description and practical evaluation, then maybe it's a word we shouldn't be using, which is often true. Pejorative racial slurs and similar words are words which um, insinuate both a description and an evaluation. They're often
1: um, words to look out for. So it seems like open question, that's really not a good way of referring to it, because it's not the question is eternally open. It's an invitation for a domain-specific argument. That if you want to say, is that really good? Is that really true? Well, that just invites you to do the kind of investigation you did in the second half of this book into what kinds of arguments for truth in that specific domain there are. Absolutely, Mark. I wish I'd thought
2: of that way of saying it. Open question is not a good way of putting it. It's not an open question in the sense that it's an open question whether NASA will ever go to Mars or something. That may be an open question because we don't know the answer. But Moore's talking about an openness, which is it's open to a different domain of inquiry, not a semantic domain. It's a
3: mark of something worth talking about.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's a mark of something worth talking about. Whereas are vixens really female foxes? That's not a question you can (laughs) sensibly raise.
1: If folks have questions for Professor Blackburn, maybe you could go to partialexamenlife.com, comment on this. I'll at least forward some questions on if you feel like answering you're no obligation. And definitely, we encourage folks to keep on discussing this on your own. Does the arguments we've raised here fulfill what rhetorically you want to do in arguing against the postmodernists or against the adherents of scientism that don't understand that truth is philosophically problematic? There's lots of things to argue about. You can follow us on Facebook. You can raise this on on Twitter. You can go to the blog again. Many options. Or email us directly at PEL at partially life.com. I want to let you all know that we're releasing another bonus discussion as part of Wes's new project. This will be a discussion of Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse 5 with Mary Claire from the Five Fick podcast. So if you're a fan of Five Fick or of Wes, I hope you take advantage of our partially examined life citizenship and listen to that. Today's closing song is called With You. For You by Pratik Kuhad, who is my guest on Nakedly Examined Music, Episode 79. Check that out at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. It's from Pratik's brand new EP, Cold Mess, which is definitely worth your time. Thank you. Thanks so
2: much. Hi, thanks. Hey, Wes, Dylan, Mark. Wonderful conversation. Enjoyed it. You have a good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Bye-bye, everyone.
4: Yeah, you seem to be okay Your sweet taste in my mouth stays So I'll be waiting in the corner For you I'm mindless, I'm just spineless Put cellophane on my mouth and kiss My love is lying in the corner you, you, it's true, true, the girl with these folds heart Intensity, we split sticks. It's slowly dying in the corner with you.